morning, Calvary. It's so good to be with you this Labor Day weekend. My question for you to begin is this. Do you know what it means to roll out the red carpet for somebody? Yeah. Some of you are like, literally, I have to get a red carpet, and I roll it out, and someone walks on it. But figuratively, it's, it's the idea that you would anticipate someone's arrival, perhaps because of their affection, your affection for them, their fame, their importance. And so you would roll out the red carpet, so to speak. You'd get rid of all the nuisances. You'd, you would solidify all the details. All the plans would be made. And they'd be able to simply arrive and everyone would be able to see them and to be able to receive them as they come into our presence. When you think of the red carpet, perhaps you think of Hollywood, but I want you to think of your own life. When perhaps has someone rolled out the red carpet for you? Perhaps it wasn't red, it was white, or maybe there were rose petals or flower petals leading you down the aisle, but there was an aisle and someone had helped make sure all the plans were taken care of, all the details were done, and everyone waited in anticipation to see you arrive. And then afterwards there was a reception in which people received you, perhaps it's not just your wedding day. Perhaps someone rolls out the red carpet for you on a graduation. You graduate from high school, college, master's, your PhD, and someone throws a party and all the details are taken care of and they're simply waiting for your arrival and then they receive you to celebrate you. Let me ask you this question. Who would you be willing to roll out the red carpet for? Would you be willing to do it for the Lord. John the Baptist is our man today, and we are in Luke chapter 3. So grab your Bibles, fire up your iPads, or Samsung tablet thing that you bought somewhere. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Raise your hand if you're a Samsung person. God loves you too. God loves you too. Just kidding. All right. For those of you who, who has paper with them today, paper. Raise your paper. Oh, sweet. We took down some trees together. That's good. All right, John, John is going to be our main focus here. And as we continue in this story, unpacking the life, works, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and our, our whole phrase it comes from Luke chapter 2. Good news, they pronounce. The arrival of Jesus is good news of great joy for all the people. And that's what we're unpacking, the good news of great joy for all the people. Luke chapter 3. As Luke does, he starts with centering the story in historical data and a geographic location. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia, and Traconitus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, as we said last week, and I think it's worthy to just reiterate, maybe if you're new, we're jumping into this gospel of Luke. And Luke is a biographical historian. He's gone to investigate at the time period of Jesus' ascension all the things that happened. And he's collecting them as an investigative journalist would. And he's cataloging them in an orderly way. 
as he's writing to a man named Theophilus, one lover of God, someone who loves God, so that they can be certain that the things that they have heard, the things that they have been taught about Jesus, are in fact true. He's fact-checked true the story of Jesus. That's what he's doing. And so the way he helps his reader understand that it's true is he situates it in time and location. So if you're a first century reader, you can actually go talk to these people. You can go look at these locations and see if it happened there at this time. So in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's about 27 or 28 A.D. And you can go look. Do do secular historians affirm that? Yes. And so he's situating this story within a few months of history. And then he situates this story geographically, near the Jordan. Not on some planet far, far away, but just outside Israel, along the Jordan. So he situates it within a few months, within a few miles, so that you can go check and see if this story is true to his first century audience. And we're able to look at this and say, are these facts true? We said this last week, it'd be like me wanting you to remember a story that happened in our community today. And I said, okay... During the second year of the Biden-Harris administration, while Jared Polis was the governor of Colorado and Justin Brooks, the mayor of Erie, and Jay Ewing was on staff at the the Calvary campus in Erie, this happened. And you're able to say, well, were all those people in those positions at that time in that location? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, then what's going to follow is historically accurate. Does that make sense? And so here he goes to help situate the narrative, the beginning of things, because he's making an orderly account from the beginning, historically, around 27, 28 A.D., just a few miles outside of Israel in the Jordan, outside Jerusalem in the Jordan. And so then he says, as it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, so this isn't something altogether new, He, he reaches back and he's saying what John is is something fulfilled. Israel has been looking for this individual, a forerunner, one who would come before the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, the rescuer, and he would prepare the way. So this is from Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What's he saying? There's going to be a forerunner who's basically going to roll out the red carpet. Prepare the way. He's going to flatten the mountains, fill the valleys, straighten the paths, smooth the roads, so that all flesh can see God's salvation. And prepare their hearts. To receive him. That's the promised work that John the Baptist is fulfilling. Now, Isaiah is not the only prophet to foretell of a forerunner, Micah, or sorry, Malachi, to go to the last prophet in your Old Testament. This is Malachi. Some call him the Italian prophet, Malachi. They don't, actually. I just made that up. They, they don't do that. But Malachi. Chapter 4, verse 5. Here are the last words of the Old Testament. The closing of the Old Testament. Behold, I, that being God, will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, sorry, of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. 
lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So someone will come, a prophet, in the spirit of Elijah, will come and prepare the way before the Messiah shows up. Now we go back to the Gospel of Luke. And Luke accounts for things according to their order from the beginning. And he starts with the birth of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is actually a miraculous birth. And John the Baptist is born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. He's a priest. She's a devout, righteous woman. But she's advanced in her years, and she's barren. They haven't had a kid. And they're praying that the Lord would provide them a kid, would bless them with a child. And the Lord grants it, that Elizabeth would be the mother of this John the Baptist, the baptizer. And so this is what was said of him. So many things, but here in verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, I'm going to link up the end of your Old Testament to the beginning work of Jesus. Verse 16, telling the parents, and he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, the one that Isaiah had promised would show up, the one that Malachi was foreshadowing would come, the spirit of Elijah is this John the baptizer, the one who would do the very thing that the Old Testament concluded saying, look for him. When he arrives, the Messiah is on his heels. There's one thing he's going to do, he's going to preach and he's going to turn their hearts back to God. He's going to turn family hearts back to one another. One of the earliest signs that a community has departed from God is the destruction of the family. And so here is the beginning of turning the hearts back to God, turning fathers' hearts back to children, children's hearts back to God, the crooked back to the ways of wisdom. This is the work of John the Baptist. And then he grows in wisdom and stature, and he departs for the wilderness. At the end of chapter 1 of Luke, verse 80, if you're going to try to impress your friends that you're going to memorize a chapter of the Bible, I wouldn't go with Luke chapter 1. I'd go somewhere in 1st or 2nd John. But verse 80 of chapter 1 says this of John. The child grew and became strong in the spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So this voice will come out of the wilderness as Isaiah promised. And so with all that in your mind, that John is this forerunner to prepare the hearts of people to receive the Lord, the promised one. We go back to chapter 3, and we see that he is in the wilderness. And while he's in the wilderness, he's not working on his PowerPoint presentation. He's not trying to figure out this 10-minute TED Talk that's going to really impress people when it's time. No, he's in the wilderness, which is a place of preparation. Wilderness in Israel's history is a place in which God prepares his people for something. Moses left Egypt and went to the wilderness to be prepared. Israel was in the wilderness before the promised land at a time of preparation. John the baptizer is in the wilderness in preparation until we get this line, the word of God came to John. So what John's going to come in and share back in the public sphere is not his pithy thoughts or statements. It's the word of God. The reason people should pay attention to what John has to say is because it's God's words. But the creator of everything spoke and is using John as a messenger to communicate his message to the general public. And so the word of God came, and, and this is what the word of God summed up was, proclaiming a baptism of repentance 
for the forgiveness of sins. That's the message that, that John was given back to the public sphere. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism is the idea of being immersed into something. When, when you see a baptism happen here on stage or maybe out in the lawn, you watch somebody baptized, they're immersed in the water completely. And so to be baptized in the family of God is to be immersed into the family of God. So this baptism is to be immersed into the things that God is doing. Now, this kind of baptism was only known to the Jews when converts who are Gentiles wanted to convert to Judaism, they would go through an act of baptism to be not believers of God, to being brought into the family of God. They would be immersed in this washing. Now, here's the crazy thing is that John's message is going to go out to everybody, including those who are professing Jews, children of Abraham. And we're going to see it's going to take an act of humility to say, okay, I'm a Jew already. Why would I have to be baptized? You have to be immersed into the grace that God is providing. You have to be immersed into the fresh thing that God is doing, the fulfilled thing that he is making happen. So it's a baptism of repentance. And this word repentance, I mean, if you're around the church long enough, you've probably heard this word. If I don't hear it too often in the world. Repentance is first and foremost like rethinking. That you would stop where you're going and you would start thinking, rethinking the direction that you're headed. And then it would have to do with this turning what's john's message remember back in chapter one that he would turn the hearts of people back to god so repentance is you're heading in a direction and then you stop to rethink is this the direction i want to be going and then there's a turning back a turning away from the way you were going maybe this was your desires maybe this was an orientation of your dreams or your vision for your life or disobedience and repentance is i stop and I turn. See, repentance is not simply feeling sorrowful. You've probably thought that before. That if someone's going to repent, they're going to be really sorry for the things they did. But that's not true repentance. It's not you're walking along, you hear about Jesus, and you go, oh, man, I'm so sorry for the things I did. Anyway, and then you keep walking. Repentance is to stop, to think about the direction you're going, and to turn. To turn your life over and be immersed into the life of God, into the grace of God. That's repentance. And the reward of that repentance, being immersed in God, is the forgiveness of all your sins. To be, re to be repentant is to have the forgiveness of all your sins, past, present, and future, all forgiven. So that you belong to the Lord. That's grace. And so that's his message. The word of God is preaching a baptism of repentance, of turning away from anything that you are finding yourself secure in so that you would have the forgiveness of sins. And this is for all people. At the end of Isaiah here, verse 6 says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so he's preparing people's hearts so that all people, good news for all people, would be able to be received. And so these mountains... And valleys, these crooked and bent ways, are all the ways in which you and I create obstacles and obstructions for God to come into our life. And here's John trying to flatten those out. So, so flatten those and fill them, straighten them, and smooth them so that you would roll out the red carpet and welcome Jesus into your life. And so he has this for all people. 
that all people need these mountains lowered and valleys filled and ways straightened. And he begins with where Jesus begins often, the religious community, the people who think they need Jesus the least, think they need God's grace the least. He starts with the religious people, for all people. It's going to be for religious people and irreligious people, for all people. So that's what Jesus' message is, or John's message is, is what are the mountains in your life? What are the obstacles and obstructions that you have? Is it, is it pride? What crooked and bent ways are you trying to hide behind that prevent the red carpet being rolled out to receive Jesus? And he begins that with the religious community that are most prone to trust in their religious works, their, origin, their family of origin, what things that have happened in their life instead of trusting in the grace of God. And so you see right here in verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to rise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the, very, the first ones he starts with is, as the crowds come, let me talk to the religious leaders who are trusting in their family heritage. Like, we're sons of Abraham. And we know that God has an eternal promise to Abraham. That he'll be faithful to his children and his offspring. Now we're going to see Jesus unpack, we're going to see Paul unpack. That what it means to be a child of Abraham is to be one who walks in the ways of Abraham. Who has a righteousness by faith, not by birthright. And so here John challenges even them to say, do you have a faith in God that's accredited to you as righteous like Abraham did? So don't trust the fact that you were just born in the right family as though you belong to God. But do you have faith? Will you receive God's grace and make that to be your righteousness? And he says, you brood of vipers, he calls them poisonous snakes. Now, put your thinking cap on, biblical story. When you hear about a character who is a snake, what do you start thinking of? Who said Eden? 10,000 bonus points to you this morning. Think of Garden of Eden, Satan, the serpent, the deceiver. And so what you have here is, is John calling them, this religious community, sons and daughters of the devil. Children of the devil is what he's calling them. Jesus will later call them children of the devil too. He says, you're children of the devil. You don't think you're children of Abraham. You have no faith that's required like Abraham had in God. You are a brood of vipers. And then he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Like there is a coming judgment. But here's the good news. There's actually a way to escape it. And, and what John's saying is, who told you about this? Who has awakened in you that you should come out? Because this is the direction of escaping the judgment to come. There is an escape. And this is the direction. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. Who told you about that? Is God stirring up in your heart to turn and seek the means of grace in which he has provided? Who has told you? This is what you should do. Bear fruits... In keeping with repentance. Meaning you have to have a genuine real repentance. And there's fruit that's produced from that. So we prepare our hearts for repentance. And then there's something that's produced in us. By God's work through us. 
that bears fruit, that, that's evidence that we have been immersed in the life of God. So bear those kinds of fruit. Show yourself to live a life that's worthy, that's true, that's authentic to your repentance. And so verse 10 expands that more people are asking, well, then how's this good news for me? What do I do? What does real repentance look like for me? And the crowds asked him, this is verse 10, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with one, with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So if you've truly been immersed in the family of God and the spirit of God is living in you and is changing you, what kind of fruit is produced in a life like that? What's evidence? Well, it's someone who has been graciously blessed by God to have more clothes than they can possibly wear at one time. Two, 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 two undergarments. And if you have more clothes than you could possibly wear at one point, well then, you would look to someone who doesn't have any clothes and you would share your clothes with them. And then some people are so blessed by God that they have more food than they could possibly eat today. And so you would look to those who don't have any food today and the fruit bearing with repentance would be that you would share your food with them. Does this sound really familiar to the teachings of Jesus? That you would clothe the naked, that you'd feed the hungry, that you'd care for the poor. That's fruit that's in line with people who have turned their life over to God, been immersed, baptized, and have seen all their sins forgiven. That's how someone would act. And it goes on. So not only the wealthy. What do the wealthy do if they're going to come to God? What would, we, what would we do to show our repentance? How about this? How about tax collectors? Verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Now tax collectors are a hated group of people. Now this is not just like the IRS getting taxes from you. The tax collectors in that day are Jewish brothers who have kind of betrayed their own country, so to speak, to work for the Roman government. To go into, the, they, they know where all the businesses are, they know where all the fishermen are, and to make sure that Rome gets all their taxes due to them. So they're almost stabbing their brothers in the back. Because not only do they collect Rome's taxes, but in order to make a profit for themselves, they take more then Rome requires, and they pad their pockets. And so tax collectors show up. Remember, this is good news for all people. Tax collectors show up. What shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And then not only tax collectors, it says soldiers also show up. These are Gentiles. Sh soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Like God has put you in a position where you wield a sword, authority, and influence over people. Do not use your position of authority and abuse people either by threat of force or by deceit to try to pad your pockets. What does he say to these two groups? Act justly. Act justly. Like, do your business justly. Do it rightly. Now, what he doesn't say is, well, you can't be a tax collector and a Christian. He doesn't say you can't be a soldier and be a Christian. Now, there are some professions in which people who turn their life over to Jesus walk away from. We see the women who walk away from their prostitution. Men and women who walk away from sorcery and witchcraft and burn their books. Now, there are certain professions, but here he's saying God has placed you in these positions. 
Maybe of wealth. Maybe of political influence. Or authority. And what you should ask is, how does someone live in this position, act in this position, that would be true of them if they have turned their life over to God? What, would, what, would, what kind of fruit would be produced there? And so he says to the wealthy, clothe the naked, feed the hungry, act mercifully. He says to the tax collector and the soldier, stay in the business you're in and act justly. Do not abuse the people underneath you. Now let me ask you, what's your job? What title do you have? Are you a teacher? Are you a lawyer? Are you in law enforcement, first responder? Are you an engineer? Are you a business owner? Are you an artist, a musician? Are you retired? You fill it in. Imagine yourself in this line of people. Like everyone's coming up to get baptized. And it's like, here come the tax collectors. What do we do? And it's like, stop stealing everybody's money. Okay. And then they're immersed in the family of God. This is what it would look like. And then the soldier comes up. And then you're up. You're up. He says, what do you do? So I'm an engineer. I'm a teacher. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm, a, I'm in law enforcement. I'm a first responder. What, what would God say to you? What fruit is produced in your life that's in keeping with a true repentant life? What would that be? What would it look like to be a teacher, a school administrator? What would it look like to be a doctor who practices here in town? What would it look like if you held a political seat in our city, in our country? How would you distinctly live differently to show that you've been immersed, baptized into the family of God? And all your sins are forgiven. That's the questions we want to wrestle with. Is what, would, what would God call us to do? Now that fruit is not produced by our strength. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. It's what the fruit of the Spirit. It's by being connected to God that fruit is produced. We don't manufacture it. Being connected to God, that fruit is produced in our life. That's why it's evidenced that we're connected to him. It's like a tree that bears good fruit. And so he continues to go on, I think in this, this passage, what it, shows, what it means to walk with God. Speaking of himself, in verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Like, this message is unbelievable. This grace is so good. Maybe John's the Christ, not just simply the forerunner. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. All these people think, maybe John's the Messiah, the promised one. And as John's fame grows, John's ego could grow too, but it doesn't. John says, no, someone greater than I is coming. Someone so much greater than I is coming. I baptize you with water, which is a visible, outward sign of an internal reality. He's coming to baptize you, immerse you with the presence of God in your life. And I'm not even worthy to touch his sandal. Now, in that first century, when someone would come into your home, servants of the house would come and untie your sandals and wash your feet. John's saying, I'm not, I can't even wash his feet. I can't even untie his sandal. I can't even take his shoe off. That's a posture of humility before God. That's humility before God. Now, John could actually try to like ride the coattails of Jesus. Because from, from Luke chapter 1, we learn that John's mom and Jesus' mom are relatives. 
They're like, imagine John being there and saying, okay, John, are you really the Messiah? Like, no, I'm not the one, but second cousins, third time removed, mother's side, relation. Like when my cousin shows up, we're going to knock some things out of the park here. But he doesn't. He says, no, the one coming, Jesus coming? Oh, I can't, I can't even take off his shoes. That's a posture of humility. So maybe when the question is, what does God require of us? What is the true fruit of repentance and baptism and the forgiveness of sins? What does a life look like? Well, it looks like mercy. It looks like justice. And it looks like humility with God. Does that sound familiar anywhere? Does anybody know a verse from the Bible that sums that up? Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8. What, what do you require of us, O oh God? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That's the fruit. And these are, these are examples of how that fruit plays out in people's lives who belong to God. Let me ask you this question, as honest as possible. Does your life produce fruit like that? I would imagine a room this size, there's a lot of people that would say, Man, I've repented. I've given my life to Jesus. Were you sorrowful and you continued on? Or did you truly repent, which is to turn, to turn, and to come and surrender your life, immerse your life in Jesus Christ, and the fruit that he's going to produce out of you is of mercy and justice and humility. Can you see that fruit? In your life. And if not, man, the invitation is to come. Come to Jesus. Now, not everybody wants to come to Jesus. This is our last little section here in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John's been preaching repentance and even talking against Herod saying, you can't steal your brother's wife and all these other things he's doing that's evil. And Herod says, I want nothing to do with that. That's his mountain. Like away from me. That's, that's his pride. That's his crookedness that he's hiding behind. I want nothing to do with receiving your message. And so he takes John and he puts him in prison. Here's my question for you. What do you want to do with the message? Prepare your heart, roll out the red carpet to receive Jesus into your life. Or keep building mountains, expanding valleys, hiding behind what's crooked, making it really rough for the Lord to come. Because the good news is right here, John, this is right here, that John continued to preach good news to the people. Good news includes two ingredients, the presence of justice and the possibility of forgiveness. That's what good news is. You can't have good news if you don't preach both of them. That's why John is both. There is a way to escape. And there is the reality of a judgment. If you don't have both ingredients, the presence of justice and the possibility of forgiveness, you don't have good news. Because think of all the ways in which you have been wounded and harmed in your life. Think of all the ways in which people have hurt you, betrayed you. Think of the evil that's been done to you. Abuse that's happened. Isn't it good news when you hear that the king of righteousness is coming to make all those things right? 
that none of it has escaped his eye, that he will hold into account every single thing that has happened to you that has been done wrong. And we say, yes, make it right, Lord, make it right. And say, oh, he is so good and he is so right that he won't let any wrong or evil hide in any corner or closet. And so he will expose all the hearts of men and women of all their intentions and all their activity and all of their doings, and he will judge them fairly. And we say, wait a minute. I've done some of those wrongs. I've hurt other people. Not justice for me. Who could stand before him? That's not good news, we would say. Correct? Unless there's also the possibility of forgiveness, which is all who come to me who are repentant and baptized in the family of God through the blood and the work of Jesus Christ would be forgiven. Would have all their sins forgiven. They'd be made right with God, perfectly right with him. That all of our guilt and shame, past, present, and future would be washed away. Now that's good news. That evil will not get off the hook. And there's the possibility of forgiveness for all who want it. The question is, do you want it? To roll out the carpet and say, Jesus, come. I want it. I want it. The, all these mountains, all these valleys, all these crooked things, they were ways that I tried to keep you away from me. I, I want you. Come here. I want you. I want you to forgive me. I, I can't think of a better way to reflect on that question than to ponder on it at the communion table. This is the work of Jesus Christ to come and forgive us of all of our sins. And so if you're helping to serve communion, would you come forward?